We're going to be in His Word today, continuing to ask God to speak to us. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 27, reading through verse 50. We come to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Let us read together. Follow along as I read. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put on a scarlet robe of thorns. They put it on his head, and they put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put a charge against him which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let, let God deliver him now if he desires. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we enter into this very holy ground of Scripture, we ask that you would help us to not just stand in awe of the gore, but that we would see ourselves as united in the death of Jesus Christ. God, let this mean something for us today. And I pray that as we encounter Christ on the cross, that we would be changed this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oswald Chambers once said this, 
all of heaven is interested in the cross of Jesus Christ. All of hell is afraid of the cross of Jesus Christ. It is only human beings who ignore it. I wonder if you are ignoring the cross of Jesus Christ. It's amazing how we can know so much theology. We can talk all about the doctrine of election. We can talk all about the, the uh, church structure and who should lead a church. It is amazing how so often we forget the meaning of the cross in our life. I don't mean you can't articulate it. I don't mean you intellectually forget and have to look it up in a dictionary, what is the meaning of the cross of Jesus Christ. I mean in your daily life, Monday through Friday, in your daily life over the weekends, in your daily life we live without any kind of understanding of the cross. We live without any any core understanding of the meaning of the cross. We hang our heads. We live in our guilt. We live in our sorrow. We live as condemned people. We live as forgotten people. We live as sorrowful people. We feel charged. We feel condemned. We forget the meaning of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is our 42nd sermon in the book of Matthew. And we finally arrive at the cross. In some ways, we could say that all of Matthew has been walking uphill toward the cross. One person put it this way. They said, all of the Old Testament has been walking uphill, leading us up Calvary to the cross. We stand now today in this text at the cross on Calvary. At a place called Golgotha, a skull-shaped hill. And I want us to encounter the meaning of the cross this morning. I want us to be reminded of the meaning of the cross this morning. Here is something, a statement that I just want you to take as fact this morning. All of life hinges around the cross. All of life in this world and in the next hinges on the cross. And if we don't understand and live with the meaning of the cross in our hearts and in our minds, then we will miss it. We'll miss it. So what is the cross? Why is the cross so important? The cross has become one of the most common uh, symbols in all of society. I mean, we see crosses everywhere. Crosses on jewelry. Anybody, anybody wearing a cross on your, around your neck today? There we go. Crosses. Maybe tattooed. I know we got some cross tattoos in this house. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Crosses on the tops of steeples. Crosses everywhere. Crosses in our own church logo. What is the big deal about the cross? Especially when we put it into context and we remember that the cross is sort of like the ancient electric chair times about a thousand. 
Why is the cross so important to us? Why is the cross such a well-known symbol in all of human history as well as our current day? We see in verse 46 something that happened on the cross that is a great mystery that really in some ways makes the cross so very important. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, he utters these words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which some people think that he's calling for Elijah. They misunderstand Eli for Elijah. He's not calling for Elijah. He's, it's a reference for God. He's, what he's saying translated is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What happened on the cross? The meaning of the cross is not so much in the physical reality of how gory it was or how shameful, but we have to understand the spiritual reality in order to understand its meaning for us today. Let's look at this passage together. We see physical agony. We see social agony. Jesus is mocked. Jesus is beaten. Going back to verse 26, Jesus is whipped. He is scourged. This whipping, as I mentioned last week briefly, was, would have been done with a whip filled with leather uh, straps, and on the end of each thong would be nails and, and, and uh, uh, metal and pieces of bone tied in there to where as the whip would strike the back or the sides or wrap around to the front, it would grab chunks of skin and just pull. By the end of this whipping, Jesus would have been uh, what, what we might just simply refer to as a bloody mess. Torn to pieces. His insides showing. Now from there, the, he, he begins to be, to be mocked as he's being about to be crucified. Now, briefly, crucifixion was barbaric activity. Uh, Roman citizens weren't even allowed to be crucified. It was so bad. Crucifixion would only be for the scum of the earth. Crucifixion for them would have been slaves. It would have been Jews. It would have been others who are not Roman citizens. One historian, one ancient historian of this time says of crucifixion that we must not even talk about it. It's that bad. And here we see in the Gospels very few details actually of what happened in the crucifixion. Nowhere in the Gospels do we see that a description of how Jesus' arms were spread or how His feet were placed or how nails were hammered through His wrists. There's no description of, of how He was placed upward and, and dropped onto the, 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 uh, the cross itself. Actually, it's all it says is uh, in verse 35, it just simply says, when they crucified him. When they crucified him. That's all it says. It's almost as if the details of the crucifixion were just too much to even recount. 
they would have known what when they crucified him means. Those words alone, when they crucified him, would have made the ancient cringe. He now stands before a battalion. This is about 600 soldiers. And these soldiers begin to mock Jesus. They dress him up as if he's a king. Now remember, he's half dead. And he's standing there and they, they place a, a, a crown of thorns on his, head, on his head and push it into his skull. And they place a, a, a garment, a red garment on his back. And they put a staff in his hand. And then they hail him, King of the Jews, in mockery. How ironic that is. Here he stands, dressed up as a pretend king, the king, being hailed with words of mockery. Hail, king of the Jews. How ironic that is. They then take the staff, and the the physical agony continues as they beat Jesus in the head. He's taken to a place called Golgotha, which was probably a skull-shaped hill of some sort on Mount Calvary. And as he's being led to Golgotha, it was common for those who were being crucified to carry the crossbeam on their own shoulder to their own death. Many of them would not be able to make it up the hill, and it would be common for someone else to be pulled out of the crowd to help them carry it the rest of the way. Simon of Cyrene, from modern-day Libya, is called upon to carry the cross of our Lord. He carries it. Jesus is then placed onto the cross. There they crucified Him. His cause of death, or the the cause of death for a typical crucifixion, would be a, a, a result of a number of things. Loss of blood from the scourging. Shock. Cardiac arrest, possibly suffocation. In the final moments of the crucified individual's life, they would often break the legs, which would cause almost immediate death. It it was filled with physical agony beyond our comprehension. He was offered by the bystanders a drink. It was, it was common and it was allowed for those who are accompanying the victim to create some kind of beverage that might help take away the sting. And so there's this wine mixed with gall, which would be a very bitter drink that was offered to Jesus. He tastes it, he denies it, and he continues on toward the cross. in addition to the physical agony, is the social agony of crucifixion. He's mocked. Matthew has a very strong theme of mockery. I don't know if you noticed that as we read. But everybody, from the soldiers to the thieves being crucified next to Jesus, are mocking him. He's made fun of. In verse 35... The soldiers take his garments. Now this is somewhat of a, uh, a benefit to being a soldier as you get to keep whatever is on the body of the crucified victim. And so they cast lots. They throw dice for the garments of 
Jesus. They put a sign above his head which reads, King of the Jews. Again, how ironic this is. But for them, they are mocking Christ. In verse 38, it says he was crucified with a robber on his left and on his right. Remember, we discussed last week how that word robbers is likely the word rebels. These are rebels. These are insurrectionists. Most likely, they are cronies that were hanging out with Barabbas. Murderers. Condemned with Barabbas, but we remember the exchange which took place. Jesus is likely hanging on Barabbas' cross, being crucified with rebels as a rebel. He hangs in utmost shame for all to see. Likely, this is a, a Golgotha is near some kind of road that would be like an interstate as there are a a lot of passerbyers, people walking by. You know, thousands were coming in and out of Jerusalem during this season. And so many, possibly hundreds during this time, are walking right past the cross as they get a glimpse of this Jesus that they've heard about, this fool who claims to be the king of the Jews. And what do they say? They join in the mocking. In verse 39, it says that they deride Jesus. They mock Him. They taunt Him. Save yourself. Get yourself off the cross if you think you are so high and mighty. Look at verse 40. They're saying this, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. This false accusation, Jesus' words that were twisted to be used against him three years ago. Jesus had said, I could destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days, of course, referring to his own body. But those words would be used against him as the very words which would condemn him. And now they're throwing his, their, their, their twisted version of his words in his own face and saying, hey, if you can do all of this, then save yourself. Get yourself off of the cross. Do something. And I think verse 41 in our flesh would have to sting so bad as the chief priests, scribes, and elders themselves mock him. These are the very people all throughout this book of Matthew who have been trying to attack him, trying to condemn him. And now they have him. And here, it's as if they're addressing the crowds coming by. As these people walk by mocking Jesus, aren't you the Son of God? Save yourself. And, and they address the crowds. And they say, no, leave him alone. He trusts in God. He trusts in God. If, if, if God wants to, God will save him. He's mocked even by the rebels that he is crucified with in verse 44. He is stripped of all dignity. He is stripped of the ability to hide his face as he cringes. Stripped of his clothing. Crucified victims would be crucified naked. 
Whether a loincloth would be permitted is unknown. Jesus hung, exposed, broken, bloodied, mocked, condemned for all to see. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23 says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. According to Israelite tradition, the person who hangs on a tree is seen as one who is cursed by God himself. And ancient Jewish sources show us that Jews in this day applied Deuteronomy 21-23 to Roman crucifixions. They believed that if you were crucified on a cross, on a tree, by the Roman government, then you are cursed by God. Paul himself applies this in this way in Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, as he, as he declares that Jesus was cursed by God. Jesus died a shameful death. Sin is shameful. Sin is shameful. If, if you, just for a moment, if you had every secret that you've ever, that you've ever uh, thought, every secret that you're keeping to yourself, every, every reality of your life that you would tell no one, if I were to say, uh, hey, Kay, go ahead and put, put uh, everybody's secrets up here on, on the PowerPoint, how would you feel about that? If I was able to do some recon work in your life and I figured out a couple things, I'm not even going to say any names, I'm tempted to, but... And I asked Kate, let's go ahead and just put some secrets up on the screen. How would you feel about that? Other than wanting to shoot me. If all of your sin was known, if all of your cheating to get through school was, was known, If all of the many ways that you've robbed your boss through idle time in the workplace was known, your boss got a letter, this is how many hours you've been robbed of. If your browsing history was published in tomorrow's newspaper, how much shame is there in sin? You see, the reason we typically don't think of sin as shameful is just because we've become so good at covering it up. We're so good at pretending like sin is not that big of a deal. We're so good at manipulating our own minds to believe that, that everything's fine. It's somebody else's fault. But if, if, if our sin were to really go public, we would remember that sin is exceedingly shameful. Check this out. One person said Jesus could not have died a hero. Jesus had to have died in shame because he's dying for sin. Jesus could not have died as a wonderful martyr, like a... Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King, someone who's loved by the crowds and some crazy radical shoots him in the head. 
He couldn't have died as a hero. He couldn't have died with fan, fanfare. Jesus had to have died in utmost shame. How did Jesus die? He did not die as a hero. How did he die? Jesus died as one who had been forsaken by his friends. His very inner circle had run and hid and turned their backs on him and denied him. The very people who had been trying to, to get him his entire life, now they've got him and they're mocking him. The very people that he, would be, he had been loving and, and seeking to heal and seeking to preach to are now deriding him and mocking him. He dies in utmost shame. Because he dies for sin. Physical agony. Social agony. But you know what it was that Jesus most dreaded when he thought of the cross? You know what it was? It wasn't either of those two. As painful as it's going to be, Jesus doesn't say, God, take away the pain. May this be quick. If there's any way for this to just be a quick chop of the neck, let it be. He doesn't pray that. He doesn't, he doesn't pray that God would remove the shame of the crucifixion. He doesn't pray, God, I just pray uh, as I hang on the cross that nobody shows up. Just kind of like, let me be, let me have my little corner on God. I pray that nobody will see anything. I pray that the chief priest won't be there, please. No, he doesn't pray that the shame in front of people, the rejection by man would be alleviated. What is it that haunts Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as it pertains to the cross. Look at verse 46 again. One theologian says that we must approach this verse on our knees. Verse 46 says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The great mystery of the cross, how can God reject God? How can God reject, forsake God? It's not the fact that Jesus no longer was God. It's not the fact that the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinity was in some ways severed and Jesus was separated from the Godhead. God cannot cease being God. Yet Jesus cries out to the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is not surprised by what's going on. It's not as if he's confused. In Matthew chapter 17, he's predicted this moment. So he's not asking a question out of confusion. Didn't see this coming. 
What is it? What's happening here? What's happening here is this. God the Father is rejecting God the Son. For the first time in all of His life on earth, and as an eternal being, for the first time, He experiences the rejection of God. God the Father rejects the human nature of Jesus Christ. In this moment, Jesus is without grace. In this moment, Jesus is without love. His entire human nature has come underneath the judgment of God. If you look at the text, in verse 45 and 46, we see that for three hours, from the sixth hour, which is 12 p.m., until the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., for three hours, darkness came over all of the land. This darkness would be symbolic of all of God's judgment for sin coming over the cross in this moment. And here, God forsakes Jesus Christ. When Jesus was in the garden, He prayed, if it's possible, let this cup be passed from me. What is the cup that Jesus is referring to? In Psalm chapter 75, verse 8, it says that God has a cup in His hand. And in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17, that cup is called a cup of God's wrath. What is it that Jesus was dreading? When He said, God, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way that I might bring redemption into this world without having to drink the cup of wrath, let it be. But Jesus, rejected not just by man, on the cross, Jesus is rejected by God. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 says that God gave us Christ presented as our propitiation. Everybody say the word propitiation. I think it's dead. I think it might be dead. It's dead. We died. That was a uh, just a little illustration of death, right there. Propitiation. What? Say it again, like you understand what it means. Propitiation. It means to satisfy God's wrath. God, in this moment poured out the entire cup of hell that would have been yours onto the head of Jesus Christ. As one person put it, in this moment, for three hours, hell came to earth. He was rejected. The human nature of Christ abandoned by God the Father. 
What is the significance of all of this for us today? What does the cross mean for us today? When I say we need to remember the meaning of the cross, what are we talking about? The cross of Jesus Christ brings man to God. The cross of Jesus Christ brings all kinds of people to God. David Platt, in his commentary on Matthew, summed it up this way. He said, before the cross, we had eternal death. But because of the cross, we have eternal life. Before the cross, we were afraid of God. Because of the cross, we are friends with God. Before the cross, we were cast out of God's presence, and because of the cross, we are invited into the presence of God. What does the cross mean for your life? What does it mean for you that Jesus was forsaken on the cross? Let me give it to you in a couple different ways. First, Jesus is forsaken as your substitute. He's forsaken as your substitute, taking you from death to life. There's this TV show called The Walking Dead. Some of you may be addicted. The premise of the show is pretty simple. There are walking dead people. That's pretty much the whole show. And the main characters try to stay alive. That's what they do. Now, a lot of religious people live their life with that kind of mentality. They look around. They see dead people walking all over the place, the lost, the zombies of the earth, and they just try to hide. They say, you know what? We don't want to be infected by these dead people, and so we just want to try to hide. We want to just try to keep ourselves pure and clean and not engage with the dead people. Listen, some people say that the church is, is, is to be compared with a hospital for sick people. And I like that and I get that. But I'm going to take it a step further. I think the church is better compared to a morgue where a bunch of dead bodies sprung back to life. And we're hanging out together. You see, unlike the walking dead, the gospel of Jesus Christ has the reverse effect. Satan is afraid of the cross. Why? It's because if someone sees themselves in Christ, and they see that Christ is their substitute, what that means is that they then die with Christ, and if they die with Christ three days later, he rises from the dead, and they rise with Christ as well. The cross gives us power over death. The enemy is not trying to get us, in fact, us. It's the reverse. The enemy is afraid of the people of the cross. Why? Because we have a power in the cross. As the cross of Jesus Christ is clearly explained to a dead person, it has the power through the work of the Holy Spirit to bring that 
dead individual back to life. This is the doctrine of the substitution. Jesus died in our place. He took our death in his own body on the tree. And we then are a people of life. What do we do as we gather here on Sunday mornings? We celebrate life. We look at each other and we we remind ourselves you're alive. You're spiritually alive. Secondly, he is forsaken as God's propitiation. He's forsaken as our substitute, and he's forsaken as God's propitiation. And so then we move from fear to friendship with God. Fear. Fear. Fear is a big problem in life. We've got phobias for everything, don't we? I looked it up. Porphyrophobia. That's a diagnosis. That's a pho- fear of the color purple. Odontophobia, fear of teeth. Graphophobia, fear of writing in public. We're afraid of everything. We are a fearful people. Am I good enough? Where am I in life? Do I have enough success? Do I have what it takes? Am I going to survive? How am I going to die? We are afraid of everything. Our lives are lives which are wrapped in fear. But check this out. If this verse is true, which says, 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we love God, but God sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. If that verse is true... If the doctrine of propitiation, which we just learned, is true, then that means we've got nothing to be afraid of. Because there is no hell left for us. Are Christians in danger of hell? Are Christians in danger of going to hell? Well, there is a real danger that outside of Christ you have nothing but hell. But family, the hope that you have is that there is no hell left for you. That Jesus drank it all when he took the cup of God's wrath for you. He took all of it. And God is satisfied. He is propitiated. You know the difference between substitution and propitiation? Substitution is man-word, propitiation is God-word, which means man doesn't need to be propitiated. We don't need to be satisfied. We need a substitute. God, God doesn't need a substitute. God needs to be propitiated. And Jesus' death has satisfied God, which means then that we no longer live in fear of God, but we then are brought into friendship with God. Each week, the the liturgy of our church reminds us of this as we go through a time of confession, as we are brought to the holiness of God and we, we confess our sins, but then we are bathed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are reminded that, that God forgives you, that there is no hell left for you. 
God is satisfied. I love our community group, times of confession that we have in our community group. As we break on, on Wednesday nights in our group, we break into, into men and women. And, and so I go with the men. I don't know what the women's time is like. And I'll be sitting with the guys, and we will confess sin to each other. It is beautiful. Why? Why? Because the shame is gone. The guilt is gone. It's amazing when you get a couple guys together, and they confess sin to each other, and they hear the words, thank you for confessing that. You are forgiven. Praise God. Praise God that that nags at you, and praise God that you've confessed that. Freedom, friendship with God. We have nothing to fear. Adam and Eve, what did they do when they, hid, when, when they sinned? They hid from God. No, we no longer hide from God, nor do we hide from His body, the church. But we cling to each other, and we, 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 we represent Christ to one another as we speak the gospel over each other's lives, as we remind each other that we are not living out of fear. We are living in friendship. Thirdly, Jesus is forsaken so that we might be reconciled as our substitute, as God's propitiation, so that we might be reconciled. We go from outside of God's presence to inside of God's presence. I remember when I was a kid, you know, you may, may have had a parent that told you stories when you were growing up, of like their childhood. My mother would tell us stories often at bedtime of her childhood. And there's one story that for some reason stuck in her head, and it's stuck in my head as well. And I think it's because it perfectly captures something. My, my mother, when she was a child, I don't know how old she was, maybe eight or nine, she was at a beach with her family, and uh, she wandered off on this crowded beach and uh, couldn't find her family. And you can only imagine the kind of panic that a child would have as they run through the beach, looking at all these people trying to find someone that they recognize, she ran out into the parking lot thinking maybe that they were leaving. She found their car, but she couldn't find them. And then she found them. That was pretty much the story. And I remember as a child, I'd be like all into it. Like, like this is the, like the 19th time I've heard it. I'd be like, tell me the story about when you got lost at the beach. Why? Why does that stick out in my own mind? I think it's because as a child, when you lose someone... It's, it, it's extremely fearful. And if you know the fear of what it, what, it, what it is to be lost outside of the presence of your loved ones, you also know the joy of being found. Amen? I need you guys to be with me, amen? If we understand how terrible it feels when we are outside of the presence of God, we understand how wonderful it feels when we are found, when we are brought back into the presence of God. Why is it that that message doesn't click with people? It's because people in society today just assume the presence of God. They assume everything's fine with God. The response of the average human being today is, is this, I'm fine with God. No, I don't want to know if you're fine with God. 
Is God fine with you? That's the bigger question. Oh, I know. I got a personal relationship. Does God have a relationship with you? Do we understand what it means to be outside the family of God? And some of you, I know you do because I know your stories. Some of you are saying, yes, I know what it's like to be outside the presence of God. I know what it's like to be lost. I know what it's like to be on my own. And I know the joy of what it is to come into the experiential presence of God. What happened when Jesus was forsaken? When Jesus was forsaken, he, in that moment, lost the positive, experiential presence of God. Not his divinity, not the sovereign presence. I'm talking about the, the, the positive, experiential, delightful presence of God he lost for your sake so that you might be found. R.C. Sproul said, if Jesus was never forsaken, I would still be in my sins. But Jesus was forsaken so that we might be found. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, reconciliation is made. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, there is a substitution. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, there is propitiation. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, you go from outside of the presence of God to inside the experiential, positive presence of God. Are you there? Are you with Christ? Are you in Christ? Not are you okay with God, but are you in Christ? Not do you have good feelings about God, but are you in Christ? Are you in Him? Are you united with His, with his death? Do you, have you ever trusted the blood of Jesus Christ? Look to the drops of blood. Look to His beaten body. Look to his body that is stretched out on the tree and see your Savior. Cling to him, run to him, flee to him, and find yourself in him. For in him there is a hiding place. For in him there is a refuge. See the Christ that has been dressed with a red robe and a crown of thorns and a staff in his hand. Is he your king? See the Christ hanging there nailed to a tree with a sign above him that reads, King of the Jews. Is he your king? Jesus is the king. Is he your king? Jesus is the road. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the door. He's the entrance. Jesus is the building. Jesus is the destination. Are you in Christ this morning? Have you ever trusted his blood? Are you trusting his blood now? Are you living with the meaning of the cross as, as the, the driving motivation behind all that you do? When Satan tempts you to despair, what do you do? What do we do? We turn it on him and we mock him. We spit at the devil. 
and we claim the blood of Jesus Christ. When we feel as if we question whether or not we add up, what do we do? We claim the blood of Jesus Christ. Your boss might have problems with you. What do you do? Claim the blood of Jesus Christ. Your identity is not found in your friends. What you have done and accomplished in your life does not define you. What is our life? What is, what is our entire life in this world and in the next hinge upon? It hinges upon the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's cling to Christ. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. We ask, God, that we would be, continue to be reminded of his death not just as a historical fact, but as a current reality in our life, what that means for us. Thank you for re making reconciliation by his blood for us on the cross. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.